Why don't you take your glasses off so we can see you? And then apologise to your neighbours for frightening nah, them. Nah, 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 nah. I'll leave these on. Nah, I like them. Weird. Australia. Hi there, I'm Stu Buchanan and you're listening to the new Weird Australia podcast. Episode number 114, we're going to be talking in this episode to Party Dozen. Now before we get there, a little bit of uh, housekeeping. Since the last episode, we've released the Solitary Wave launch film. Now Solitary Wave is the new compilation that we dropped um, about six weeks ago or so. First New Weird Australia compilation in a long time. And rather than have a live event to celebrate the release because we're all in lockdown, put together a brand new film, a brand new New Weird Australia film featuring 14 clips from eclectic and experimental Australian artists. Many of those clips made for the film, all compiled together. You can now find it on the New Weird Australia YouTube channel or you can also watch it at the New Weird Australia website. It's a bit of a visual companion to the Solitary Wave compilation itself, but of a kind of weird, mutated version of Rage. That's the Solitary Wave launch film. Do go and check it out. And one other thing I'd love you to do, can I ask you a favour? If you like what we're doing, head to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review for the new Weird Australia podcast. You'll basically help Apple Podcasts to get a sense of what's interesting and what's popular, particularly when it comes to weird music podcasts. And it helps to get new Weird Australian music in front of more people. So please, yeah, head to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating or a review. And if this is your first time listening, then please subscribe. We've got some great episodes coming up, including interviews with some conduit, Jessica at birth, and the wonderful Penelope Trap. So go and subscribe if you haven't done that yet. Anyway, that's all coming up sometime soon. In this episode, we're talking with Party Dozen which is the duo of Kirsty Tickle and Jonathan Boulay. Now, if you're new to Party Doesn't, you might know Kirsty from her solo work as exhibitionist and Jono, also well-known as a solo artist as well as performing in bands like Parades. But Party Doesn't is a very different beast. It's largely improvised, centred around the nucleus of saxophone and drums. It's wild, it's weird, it's often very loud, and to my mind, one of the most interesting Australian bands to have emerged in recent years. I was lucky enough to speak with Kirsty and Jono over Zoom a couple of weeks ago, celebrating the release of their second album, which has the compelling title, Pray for Party Dozen. This is Party Dozen on New World Australia.
guys have been recording as Party Doesn't for, for a couple of years. This is obviously your second record. It came about, um, or at least it started after you guys were sort of living living in Europe and sort of London and Berlin and from reading this sort of bio material that it seemed to start fairly contemporaneous with you coming back to Australia after that period. How much of that Berlin-London influence was sort of part of the genesis or part of the thinking of the, the project? Um, yeah, I think that was pivotal. We were in Berlin uh seeing some stuff there wasn't uh, berlin was weird it was we thought it'd be kind of like a hive of of creativity and it i think it's harder to find that layer because it's not on the top so um we'd see a lot of really great bands touring through berlin which was so cool but locally it was harder to find that stuff so uh we were exposed to some european stuff that we'd never thought we'd ever see and so that was i remember seeing a band and we noticed that they had brass instruments and they were putting them through high gain amps. And for that, I think that was a, a moment where we were just like, wow, like you can, you can do that. Let's, uh, let's explore that. Cause we, you know, Kirsty plays saxophone clarinet. Uh, so we thought, let's try that out. That was definitely, I don't think we would have tried that ever if we hadn't have seen that. Yeah. I think also um, just going from like what sometimes feels like a fairly homogenous scene here in Australia to all of Europe, you kind of get this feeling that anything is possible and that there is an audience for you for whatever you want to do. So I think that definitely led us to being more experimental than we had ever been before with music. And particularly, I guess, that sense of focusing very much on the kind of core sound of saxophone and, and percussion, right? Because you've both played in lots of bands before before Party Dozen, but you know, had you sort of considered saxophone in that more kind of extreme way before? No, I didn't even, I wasn't even playing for anyone, woodwinds for anyone at that point, I don't think. I'd sort of gone down the classical route after school and done a degree, um, but in bands I mainly played keyboards and did singing and that kind of thing, so I didn't really ever consider that I could use my more primary talent on an instrument to make something more interesting that was really fun to play. Mm. And now, I mean, you find yourself certainly on this record singing into the saxophone, it seems as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's pretty wild fun. <laughs> and was that a happy accident or is that something that you'd seen or thought that this was uh, this was a way to do it? I've, I've never seen anyone else do it. I'm sure there's someone. There can't be a whole world of people without somebody else doing that. But I think, I think that was Jono's idea. He was like, oh, don't worry about and I think it came from not wanting to bother setting up another microphone even. <laughs> and then the it's just interesting listening to vocals through all the effects pedals and, you know, it just kind of went from there. It used to really embarrass me. I don't know why now. It's really, really stupid. Yeah. I used to get really, like, um, shy about doing it on stage because it's, like, quite, I don't know, it felt quite aggressive maybe. Uh, but then I I... I remember one show we played in Newtown and it was just so much fun. And since then, I've just really enjoyed doing it. You've probably seen the, the, the faces of the audience going, what the fuck is she doing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah people have said, there have been people that have guessed that she's blowing into that end for some reason. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to see more of it. You know, now, now that I think about it, you know, we need to see whether it's, you know, sax, trombone, uh, trumpet, just turn the instrument around and, you know, mm. see what see what happens.
when we talk about the kind of formation of the band, you, you've said that you wanted to start with, with things that you were comfortable with um, and then kind of move on to things that perhaps you, you, you weren't so comfortable with in, in terms of, you know, in, in terms of instruments. So was, were sax and drums, like, so were, were they secondary or primary? Like, it doesn't sound, Krusty, like they were terribly um, central to the music you were making prior to that. What about you as a, as a drummer, Jonathan? Kirsty? Uh, I think that was a question for you first, but yeah. Um, okay, so for me, that's um, woodwinds are my primary instrument. If we're talking about like the instruments that I'm best at, like I would say, if someone asked me what instrument I played, I would answer with saxophone, clarinet. Um, before I answered with keyboards or or even as a say, I think singing for me is like my least competent uh, skill set with music. Um, so, yeah, in terms of that, like, it's absolutely primary. But in terms of doing it previously, it, it was it was secondary. I didn't really, I didn't really realise that I could, I mm. think. And what about you as a drummer, Jonathan? Like, how, how central has percussion and drumming been to your, to your work? Yeah, I guess I've always, I started on drums. I've always been on drums in multiple bands over my time. And, yeah, I guess for me it was like, it's it makes sense to start with drums because um, I'm best at drums. Uh, the part that wasn't familiar, I guess, was the the unstructuredness of it. Um, yeah, that was the part that was kind of new for me. That we'd we'd go into a show not having rehearsed anything and uh, basically just try and try and stuff. We're just trying to improvise and and make it up, and that was exciting for me. Like we'd. I come from bands that rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and we're like, we have to be better. We have to keep practicing. But yeah, this band was just the opposite. And that's what it gave you a real buzz because it could fall apart. Sometimes it did fall apart and we'd fuck it up and we'd be like, you know what? That's fine. It doesn't matter. And we'd just push ahead and sometimes something really amazing would come out. We're still kind of a band that doesn't really practice as well. Um, I would say, I think mm-hmm. we're still, we've gotten a lot better at the thing that we do, but there's still so much elements of chance that go into the live shows. One of the challenges of, of having that more improvisational approach is that when it comes to recording, you've got two options, you know, you've got, well, we're just going to set the mics up in the room and we're going to, you know, that's whatever we record is going to be the album. Um, and that certainly for some artists, that's, that's how they approach it. Um, but I remember talking to uh, the next a few years ago, you know, who's every single show is, is, is improvised, of course. Um, but when they're in the studio, I said, it's the complete opposite. You know, that he said every, pretty much every note you hear on the record is like immaculately sculpted. Um, mm. They'll record for three or four days and then they'll spend weeks like just, tiny incremental editing to to build those tracks which seems extraordinary because it doesn't sound like that when you when you hear the work how does the correlation i guess between improvisation and and then that kind of finished recorded product what's what's the relationship between those two that feels like what you just described there is kind of the opposite of us as well because we're we do like three or four takes of something um by the third or fourth take you kind of have a feel for what's working and what's not so I guess it's like lightly structured in that way. But then, yeah, so it's an improvised jam. And then when we go to play it live, we feel like I listen to the recording and I kind of get married to it. And I think, oh, this this is the best version of it. So I'm always kind of trying to recreate the recorded version, um, give or take, you know, if we're bored of it at the time or if we want to add things here and there. 
Or if I can remember how the song even goes. Yeah. It's always the, uh... <laughs> At that point, we just pull the ripcord and bail out. <laughs> Hope for the best. How does the, but how, do, how does the improvisation get to the song, though? I think um, for me, there's a, a big emphasis on deciding which pedals uh, I'm going to use. So um, kind of building my tone up um, from when we start with a loop and deciding, you know, do we want a really gritty sounding sax or do we want something more dreamy and then building that up. And then um, figuring out a couple of, I guess, hooks is probably the best way to describe for me that I can play around. So so kind of have those as like a central idea but, but kind of reach further than them. And that's kind of how I approach when we're writing new material. Jonathan, does that sound sort of similar to how you think of it? Yeah, I guess I, I, I picture a song based off the loop that we've made. I can picture how a song might feel. And then, yeah, just kind of let it, let it go. Sometimes, I, sometimes I feel like I need to, I need to play more, and sometimes I feel like I just need to sit back and kind of groove along to something. And usually, it's just adding, you know, unnecessary fills because I'm worried it's boring. So I, <laughs> you know, I let rip sometimes. Uh, and sometimes I'll just get so I'll get too tired before the end. I'll just uh, write it out. <laughs> I read a description of your music as being maximalist which I thought was interesting, you know, because because maximalism is is very much that idea of more is more. I can I can hear that often in the music, not uh, necessarily entirely through that. How much of it is a maximalist approach? I think the first record was more that than this one. We had a couple of like slower jams just to um, allow people to get a bit of a rest uh, from from the first record. But I think I think that we've matured the project a bit more to have more differences in tone color and not to just have to deliver balls balls out you know throwing shit against the wall kind of music but things that are a bit more melodic and a bit more thought out yeah it's just stuff that makes people feel something other than assaulted Right. I mean, you talk about color there because, again, that's also something that that you've both referenced. I think in, in talking about the band as well, and certainly that idea of getting a spectrum. And and you're absolutely right. Like this this record, even though it starts with you know something that is pretty unapologetic and balls to the wall and kind of, mm-hmm. there's absolutely a spectrum here. Can you talk maybe a little bit about that idea? I mean, is that is that still uh, relevant approach in terms of thinking of it as a as a spectrum of colors in that way? Yeah, I think. Building these kinds of albums, um, I don't know, I keep saying to people, I don't know, I can't imagine people listening to it all the way through without stopping. Like, I can't listen to it all the way through because it's just, you know, there's a lot to take in. So, yeah, I guess we need some more We need some more flavors to keep it interesting because if it's just all one thing, you know, you, you're not going to be able to, to listen to it. And like Kirsty said before about the hooks thing, like, uh, it needs some kind of recognizable part to it so that you can, you know, the loops definitely create that they're a recognizable part to each song they they're like the structure for the form for each piece and then uh if we can add anything else people can grab onto from that that's usually i think it's a positive thing because yeah if it's if it's balls to the wall all the time then you you know who wants to listen to that that's that's horrible yeah i think also you know we we both have a sense of wanting to be quite musical I think and I think that's where it's a recognizable bit comes in um so that it's not just a huge experiment that you just have to accept everything we're doing like I think that we're trying to get people 
on side with party dozen as well and part of that is is offering them something that they can remember something that like speaks to them as the first track you know when listening to the record and sort of that track starts and it, like i said before it's it feels very unapologetic but also it kind of feels like well to your point jonathan i think if you can get through this you know two and a half minutes whatever it is then you'll you can you can get through the rest of the record no problem mm. it's sort of mm. like a initiation almost it's in terms of the sequencing it must be really critical because it isn't just a kind of pollock painting of colors right you've you've got to like you say you're, you're trying to sort of consider the audience in terms of you know how you balance that intensity with with their ability to to stay with it i i think of it as a record that you have to flip when we were track listing it and when we were we were putting together all of the different jams so uh, each of the sides for me starts really heavy and, and aggressive and then kind of gets into more of a groove and then there's there's a bit of niceness before you start it all over again. Uh, so yeah, I feel like it just flows a little bit better that way so it's, you don't feel like the first side is just like all loud and the second side is just all soft, which is another option. Like we could have we gone that way. That's a good idea. Um, yeah, I think also... Yeah, in terms of sequencing, I feel like this is something I lean towards on most of the records that I'm involved in. I'm always trying to make the 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 first half of it or the first quarter of it um, pretty, uh, you know, like the best songs on the record. I'm usually trying to get three or four that I would consider singles to start a record, mostly because I don't think people have attention spans. I think the the only part of that that isn't true on this is we did put the world prayer at first as a here you go listen to this if you get through it you deserve the rest of the album kind of vibe like it's not that's not like a a single you know that was never going to be like a true in in my mind it's like it's a strong song to me so i feel like starting strong that's it like whether it's a single or not that's beside the point i think it's to me if i heard that i'd just be like whoa that's a big song yeah true you're right but it sounds like Kirsty then, from what you're saying, that it's really also a record to, that's made for vinyl. That it's that it's intended I, to be listened. Yeah, to I vinyl. think so. I think um, I think we always kind of have considered Party Dozen to be a record made for vinyl. If you're going to listen to it in a in a physical 
format or a project that you see live. Um, streaming's never been a, st a strong point of our our project. You know, when no one's adding party dozens of playlists or anything, but uh, we we sell a little bit of vinyl, like enough enough for Australia, definitely, like to to keep us happy, which is which is great. As long as you sell enough to make it viable, I think that's it, isn't it? It's just like, yeah. well, did we cover the costs in manufacturing? Like, you know, that's then it's worthwhile doing, essentially. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I do want to talk about subject matter because I think this is one of these things where uh, I think it might have been you, Kirsty, who said it, where you kind of introduce an idea into a press release and before you know it, every person who's interviewing you is asking you the same question. And and by that, I'm talking about this idea of cults uh, and, your, and your fictional cult. Rather than kind of ask you about it, I thought, well, Maybe that's something to reflect on in terms of like how a press release or how sort of ideas that you put out there almost kind of off the cuff then sort of form their own kind of reality. How do you think of the relationship between that idea of the cult, which is something that was maybe in the ether that you that you brought up semi-casually that has now kind of cemented itself somehow? Yeah, I think that you need people to read your press releases and everyone who writes them in PR is just trying to do their best to get somebody to read it and to talk about your release. So you need something. And, you know, John and I are just saying we're just making music because that we want to make that is, you know, on this spectrum of like tonal colours and then producing an album out of it. It's hard to get people super interested, I think, in in going that step further and listening to the record and considering it. So I think you need a story. It's definitely something we were talking about, though. It's not. It hasn't just like flown in from nowhere. Can you add to that, Johnny? Yeah, like that was one element of of many things that inspire us. And uh, I guess we've always just liked the idea of of like cultish properties applying to a band and like applying to music because it, it just it feels uh, it feels more interesting. Like yeah, like as you said, you can't just say exactly what happened because that's boring. So yeah, I guess you have to describe like where you're coming from, but it just feels stupid because people grab that and they say it's a cult, it's a cult record, it's a cult band, <laughs> and you can't you can't say anything without someone grabbing it and saying that that is exactly what you are. I think also so many people don't have a sense of humor, mm. or maybe not our sense of humor. Maybe it's that, but I feel like we're we constantly kind of say things that are a bit tongue in cheek and everyone's so earnest with music in the last two years, in my opinion, that like there's no element where people are willing to be like, ha, oh, that's funny. Like you guys are obviously not a cult, but you're trying to create a world for your music to sit in. Mm.
Kirsty, I think you might have made this comment, but it was in relation to gun control that um, you said it was a sort of a, a tribute to the time when Australia needed to change and somehow policy and private interest gave way to public safety, which is a really interesting note to make, I think, particularly during COVID-19 and, and how that kind of balance between policy and, and kind of private interest and public safety, where, where that all sits now. Do you have any reflections on COVID-19 as it, as it might relate to uh, when you're writing gun control? That was a Jono um, writing actually about the needing to change. I think I think we're just like being constantly in that state for ages. Hey, like it's just been building up to this point where again, another part of Australia's history where like we've got the opportunity to change, and it will just depend whether someone's brave enough to do it or not. It doesn't seem like they are necessarily. No. Yeah. What do you no. think, Jono? I guess, yeah, I guess it was like, that sounds pretty specific, the title of that song, but yeah, I guess it's more of a general, a general thing about the state of this place. Yeah, I guess they're not going to, there's not, there's, there hasn't been a leader, like it doesn't feel like we have a leader and that, you know, you see other countries like New Zealand and they have someone who's, who seemingly is interested in, in benefiting the country. Whereas, yeah, just, I'm just still waiting to see someone who, who can take a foot forward and just be like, this is this is the future, follow me. Well, you know, Julia Gillard was really like that, whether you liked her or didn't like her, she she really got shit done. She got through like 180 like changes or something in the short time that she was in office. Mm. But Australia is so quick to decide that they hate somebody and yeah. not support them, that they don't care what somebody does for them. That all they're interested in is, you know, what their politician looks like or like just like dumb boys club crap mm. i think so, i know it drives me crazy mm. yeah um let me ask you a last question but just more out of personal interest i think which is about the mogwai remix of course one of the greatest scottish bands of of the modern era <laughs> uh, <Amen. laughs> how did uh, how did the mogwai remix come about all right i'll go um <laughs> uh, our manager neil is a a excellent scotsman and he actually knows stuart quite well so he reached out and got in touch and asked if he'd like to remix the track and thankfully he said yes. Um, I think the, the remix is really good. It's really considered. It's it's quite different from the um, our track, um, but I, th- I think it still has some nice elements from it. Yeah, I think we were just lucky enough that they're, that they're bored enough to take on a project like that. So we were, we were very honoured that they even had the time for it. That's kind of an interesting thing about uh, the COVID thing is that people have a lot more time to do work like remixes or like, you know, things that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do because they'd be touring. So it hasn't been too bad, I don't think, for us releasing an album at this time. I think we're both a bit sceptical about what what would happen, um, but not enough to, to bother delaying it any further, I don't think. Um, well, look, thanks very much for your time. It was really nice uh, to talk to you and I appreciate you taking time out of the day to do it. Thank you very awesome. much. All right. Thanks, All right. Stuart. Cheers. See you, Stuart.
sounds may be perceived as color or color as odor. I, I knew that the boys smoked pot and they, they equally knew that I disapproved. Yes, I was free above the planet Earth. So it was rotating majestically below me. New Year in Australia.